James will say, if you fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. How does James chapter 2 correlate with Luke chapter 4? We're going to see this morning as we've been working our way through phrase by phrase in Luke chapter 4, 18 and 19, observing and looking at this mission statement drawn out of Isaiah chapter 61, Jesus applies to his life. We see in this next phrase, proclaim the good news to the poor. We see front and center this morning, we're going to see as we, as we look through our time in the scriptures today, the gospel is a gospel that is impartial. It's a gospel that comes and meets the poor. It does not distinguish between the wealthy and the poor, the high-ranking and the low-ranking, people of various classes, people of various backgrounds, people who bring various credentials. The gospel comes to the place of recognizing that every single one of us in this room, regardless of your history, regardless of your background, come in a place of spiritual bankruptcy in desperate need for God to apply his spiritual sufficiency. We all come this morning as those who are desperate for God to do a work in our lives. And so we've been looking through and moving through the Gospel of Luke and spending some time now recognizing that the ministry that Jesus had is a ministry that we have been commissioned as those who are followers of Jesus to do. This morning, to proclaim good news to the poor. English reformer Richard Baxter, who lived in the 1600s, recognized the significance of a preaching, proclaiming ministry. He said this, I preached as never sure to preach again, and as a dying man to dying men. And that, by the way, this morning, is the ministry that everybody in this room has. Those who call themselves to be a follower of Jesus Christ, a believer in salvation, the work of God has done a ministry in your life and transforming you from death to life and has made you now a preacher, a preacher of good news. And so, like Richard Baxter, do you recognize, have you come to the place of understanding the urgency of your call to preach, to proclaim the good news? I was reading this past week a testimonial by a, a man named Alan Stanton who says, as preachers, we are subject to the same vices as others. We have a natural tendency to overlook the present and put off tomorrow what we should do today. Anybody else guilty of that? Yeah. I think we can all resonate with that, can't we? But of course, we are not promised tomorrow. We only get to preach and live today. If this very day was our one last chance, would we preach and live differently? What if we preach as if our life depended on it? As if we were to stand before the justice seat immediately afterward and give an account? Today I stand ready and I long for that opportunity again, he says. You see, I was a preacher for about 10 years. 
but I have suffered with a recent diagnosis. It's only with much difficulty that I'm writing to you now. After months of what I assumed were headaches and migraines due to stress, an MRI discovered a mass on my brain, a lime-sized tumor on the left frontal lobe of my brain located in, in an area that controls my speech. I underwent a five-hour surgery while I lay awake to remove as much of the tumor as possible. The surgeon had given me forewarning that I was facing the possibility of being unable to speak at all again. While the surgery was a success, the swelling and trauma of surgery left me for the time being conversationally impaired. Four weeks later, the pathology report came back on my tumor and indicated that I had a rare and fairly aggressive form of brain cancer. Because of the nature of my tumor, treatment was scheduled to begin as soon as we could come up with the best possible plan of action. We moved to Texas, and for the following six weeks, I received 30 rounds of radiation. My journey has been long, and yet there is a longer road that lies ahead. October 27th was my last time in the pulpit before my surgery, and I pray the Lord will grant me many more opportunities to preach. Throughout this entire process, the leaders of our church, having been so patient and understanding, told me, take as much time as you need. I know I'm not ready yet to ascend the sacred pulpit. Like the surgery and radiation, I'm faced once again with the unknown side effects that lay ahead with the chemotherapy. But I ask myself, what if I get the chance to preach again? If I stepped into the pulpit and preached as a dying man to dying men, how remarkable would that be? That is, by the way, the situation in which all of us find ourselves. We, as dying men, preach and teach to those who are also dying. Do we recognize that life is a vapor that appears for a little while and is gone? So, as the psalmist says, so teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. You are not promised tomorrow. Preach and live in such a way that if tomorrow you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, you could rejoice and say, I faithfully shared the word of God, the word that is living and powerful, the word that always accomplishes its, its purpose and never returns void. That gives us an illustration of the content and summary of our message today. We, as those who are followers of Jesus, who are dying and yet preaching and teaching and living our life to and in front of the presence of dying men. This morning we recognize from our passage to proclaim good news to the poor, we see several things in this passage that, that should stimulate us to the mission that God has called us to. And while our Greek phrase this morning only contains two Greek words, I want to split this into three main points for us that we walk through this morning and recognize the mission to which God has called us. First, I want us to recognize, as Luke calls our attention to, the priority of proclamation. The priority of proclamation. We see in Luke chapter 4, as Jesus emerges in ministry, 
in Galilee, and particularly as we see him coming into his hometown of Nazareth, we recognize the significance of preaching. And we recognize the significance of the fact that Jesus had a ministry of words. Often when we come to describe the ministry of Jesus, we point to the miracles, the, the works that he did, the things that he accomplished, the, the, the evidence of the work of God in his life in casting out demons and by making loaves, uh, dispensing the loaves and the, the fish to those who were there in the audience in needing to have food. Jesus ministering to hurting needs. But make no mistake, Jesus' primary ministry was a ministry of words. This word to preach is the, is the word euangelizo. It's used 10 times in the Gospel of Luke, used 15 times in the book of Acts, this volume one and volume two of the ministry of Christ. The ministry of Jesus seen in the Gospel of Luke and the ministry of Jesus through the lives of believers in the, in the book of Acts. And then we'll see in the next couple of weeks this ministry of proclamation. This word that will be used to proclaim liberty to the captives and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor is also used to describe this teaching ministry of Christ, this ministry of words. Do you know this morning that what you have to offer the world around you, your family, your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors, is life through words. The significance of the ministry that Jesus had, a ministry of words, is the ministry that he offers to you, the same ministry of words that are life-changing, powerful, perceptive, cutting, just like Hebrews says, to the core, discerning between heart and soul discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Jesus has given to us and Jesus exemplified to us a ministry of words that was life-changing in every way. Not a ministry of action so much, but a ministry that encompassed who, who he was. Uh, this transformational ministry from the inside out doesn't just affect behavior, but affects heart and thinking and motivation. Just as we trace the ministry of Christ through the rest of Luke chapter four, Luke draws our attention to the significance of this ministry of words. Notice in chapter four, verse 21. And if you're visiting with us this morning and, and need a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you. Page 860 is where we are. Luke chapter four, verse 21. Notice, speaking of Jesus, he began to say to them, today this scripture or this prophetic word has been fulfilled in your hearing. Verse 22, they marveled at his gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Verse 23, and he said to them. Verse 31, and he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. Verse 32, and they were astonished at his teaching for his word possessed authority. Verse 35, but Jesus rebuked this unclean spirit. Verse 36, and they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? Verse 39, and he stood over her, speaking of Peter's mother-in-law, 
and rebuked the fever. Verse 41, the demons came out of the man, but he, speaking of Jesus, rebuked them. Verse 43, I must preach the good news, this is our word again, the gospel, the good news, of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Verse 44, and he was preaching in the synagogue of Judea. Chapter 5, verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. The ministry of Jesus was a ministry of words. The ministry of truth. The ministry of life. The ministry of power and change. A ministry to the heart. A ministry that flows from the inside out. A ministry, by the way, as we recognized our poverty, that we bring nothing to the table, we, like Jesus, can access the words of God, apply it to the situations that we have, and we can find that the word of God will not have any uh, emptiness. It will have its way, accomplish its purposes in the lives of those around us, just as it did with Jesus. The same ministry of words. Of course, Jesus' ministry was accompanied by signs. We see the confirmation of Jesus' ministry, that he originated from God, he carried the power of God, he accomplished the purposes of God, and as we'll see as we step through these next several phrases, that Jesus' word did come to resolve spiritual poverty to open up spiritually blind eyes, to liberate spiritual captives, that his word will accomplish its purposes in those situations. That God would grant special favor through the word that Jesus spoke. Jesus, as the word of God made flesh, spoke the words from the Father. He spoke the words of God. It was a ministry of words, but I, I want you to see that the ministry that Jesus had as a ministry of words was also a ministry of speaking the words from the Father. That as we said last week, that Jesus in emptying himself, in setting aside his glory, in setting aside the riches of heaven, in setting aside the expression of his deity while maintaining his deity, he couldn't set aside his deity in that respect, but he, he set aside the expression of deity and the, the, the miraculous works that he did and depended completely upon the Spirit's power and the words of the Father. This is very important because the words that Jesus spoke from the Father are the same words that have been given to you. The same power, the same authority, same results. And Jesus speaks these words of the Father not on his own authority but speaks in submission to the Father who sent him. I want to just take you on a, on a mini tour of several verses from John to help elaborate this point. John chapter 5, verse 30 says this. Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John chapter 7, verse 16. So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. John chapter 8, verse 26. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. John 8, 28. So Jesus, 
said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but I speak just as the Father has taught me. John 8, verse 42. Jesus said to them, if God were your Father, you would love me, for I came from God and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. John chapter 12, verses 49 and 50. For I've not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Jesus' ministry of words was a ministry of words from the Father. They proceeded from the Father. And so, those of us in this room who come to recognize our inadequacy, who come to see our lack of sufficiency, come in place and draw from the sufficiency of God and speak the words of the Father and then get to enjoy the benefits of the word having its way in the hearts of people. The ministry of Christ was a ministry of the word that proceeded from the Father. And this word had power. Paul will talk about this power in his ministry to the church of Thessalonica. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, he says, Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. And then in chapter 2, verse 13, he says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but what as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. You come to a place of recognizing your inadequacy. You come to the place of, of seeing that the ministry that you bring to the table is bankrupt, is without power, without strength, independent of the work of God. Come to enjoy and embrace the spiritual poverty in and of yourself and rest in the sufficiency and wealth and riches of God and speak the words of God and enjoy the same benefits, the power of God through his word to accomplish its work in the lives of those around you. Where is your confidence this morning as it relates to success, as it relates to fruitfulness, so often our confidence is, exists on a horizontal plane that we find that we can be effective, we can be successful, we can be fruitful as long as we control and influence the horizontal aspects of life. We have the right relationships, the right education, the right beauty, the right strength, the right careful planning, the right experience, the right connections, the right financial investments, the right credentials, the right job experience. We rest and trust in that which is horizontal. But all of these exist in a plane that is futile. And we need to rest in that which is vertical, that vertical relationship of drawing strength from God and applying that strength to the world around us. That is where we truly find our identity, our purpose and our sufficiency. Are we resting in anchoring our hope in the word of God and applying that word to the world around us? 
Jesus had a ministry of proclamation. That was the priority of his ministry, speaking the words of God. It is also the ministry that God has given to us, a ministry of proclamation. Now we come to proclaiming good news, the presentation of good news. That's the the content of our message. We speak, we proclaim, we proclaim the content of good news. And this good news also comes from God. Remember that Jesus is reading from the Old Testament. He's reading from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. That verse was written in the Hebrew, and the the Hebrew word basar is the word to bear news, to publish, to preach, to gladden with news, to announce. We get some other clues from Isaiah what this kind of news looks like and and how it bears fruit in the lives of those who are experiencing this good news. What will they do? Isaiah chapter 40 verse 9 says, Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. And then in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. You see, those who have experienced peace, those who have enjoyed salvation, those who are participants in the presence of God are overflowing and exploding, maybe is a better term, with good news, this report of who God is, his salvation, that he reigns, he's in charge, I can trust him. And this eruption of good news spills out from the heart and life of one who's truly experienced good news. The underlying message comes to those who have enjoyed the benefits of this good news and and all that it has to offer. And they recognize that they can be conduits of good news as well and inviting others to the same kind of experience. We get a sense of enthusiasm of good news even in this gospel of Luke where already three times we've seen Luke as the gospel writer use this word. In Luke chapter 1, verse 19, the angel Gabriel comes to Zechariah and announces good news. He says in chapter 1, verse 19, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. In chapter 2, verse 10, the shepherds are on a silent hill in the middle of the night and it's quiet and their night is interrupted by some angels who show up the angel says to them fear not for behold i bring you good news of great joy which shall be to all the people for unto you is born this day in the city of david a savior who is christ the lord luke is not subtle in helping us understand That good news for those who've experienced it is something to be shared and something that was prominent in the life and ministry of Jesus and something that needs to happen continuing in the lives of those who call themselves followers of Christ. Good news, as you know, is hard to contain. You ever have someone share some good news with you and they say, keep it a secret, don't tell anybody. (laughs) 
And you know, any of you who are parents who have good news, you know who in your family you can tell and who in your family you can't tell if you want to keep good news quiet. And even when you think you have told the people who, uh, who can keep their mouth shut, you learn later on you're not so effective after all. Ever have good news to share? How does that good news make you feel? I think about wedding engagements. I think about birthing announcements. I think about your favorite sports team that's just won the premier event. Maybe you got that promotion. Maybe you got accepted into that college or university. Maybe you aced that test. Maybe you received that scholarship. Maybe you got that result and it was negative and you can celebrate at good news. So who do you tell this good news to? Well, you might tell your friends and family. You might tell those who are close to you. But good news is impossible to contain. And so you tell everybody the good news. You work it into whatever conversation that you're in. You're standing in the checkout line. You say, hey, by the way, I don't know who you are, but I got some good news to share. Or you're pumping gas and you've never met the person on the other side. But that doesn't matter because you've got some good news to share. This is how good news is meant to be conveyed. It's meant not to be concealed. It's meant to be shared with those who are around you. And we not only have good news, we have the best news in the universe. Forgiveness for sins, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, no condemnation, the gift of the indwelling spirit, fellowship with God, access to the holy of holies, no longer aliens and strangers, but citizens, children of God, joint heirs with Christ, eternal life, power over sin, purpose for living, good news. And so when we find ourselves concealing the good news, when we find ourselves quiet about the news that should be exploding from our life, what does that say about the goodness of that news to you? What does that say about the way that you view that news? And has it resonated in your heart? And as John was saying this morning, do we wake up with fresh experiences of how wonderful this news is that God has given to us? And does it awaken within our hearts a desire to explode and abound with this gospel message that is the best message, the best news the world could ever know? I wonder if the gospel loses its appeal sometimes because of the target audience, which is our last point this morning. Notice, good news to the poor. And there are two target audiences of those who are poor, this good news to the poor. And briefly, I want to just share with you that these involve those who are not only physically poor, but also spiritually poor. And so in order to be a person who shares good news, you need to come to the place in your own life of admission that you are desperately in need for this good news. 
In order for you to offer this news, you need to come to the place of recognizing your spiritual bankruptcy, recognizing that you add nothing to this gospel salvation. There's no merit that you apply to the work of Christ in your life. It is all of him, his righteousness alone. And sometimes I wonder if that's what makes the news so hard to share. Because we need to admit that we're desperate. We need to admit that we're needy. We need to come to a place of admitting that we are sinful people in desperate need for God. Who are these poor? First, those who are poor physically. Proclaim good news to the poor. There was a perception of those living in Christ's day that people who lived in poverty were being disciplined by God. And we could go to Deuteronomy chapter, eight, chapter 28 and we could kind of develop this. This is the chapter where the law is being retold by Moses and he, he works through the, the blessings for those who are obedient and the curses for those who are disobedient. And the natural thought and the natural uh, perception of those reading this passage is if my life is following the checklist, if I'm working through the formula, if my A plus B is leading to a happy, fulfilled, successful life, then I must be doing it right. And so the converse was also true. For those whose lives were, were lived in poverty and in need, Certainly they were getting the formula wrong. They must not have been following the right process, the right steps. This was the problem that the apostles had when Jesus encountered the rich young ruler in Luke chapter 18. You'll know in Luke chapter 18, verse 18, I wanna just briefly walk through this this story for you to, to bring it to bear on our hearts. This ruler comes and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What a golden opportunity to share the plan of salvation. But Jesus' gospel looks more like a health and wealth kind of gospel. You know the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. What in the world was Jesus doing? This perfect opportunity to share the gospel and expose his spiritual need. And Jesus walks through the commandments. Which, by the way... If this rich young ruler had been listening, if this rich young ruler had the perception of recognizing what Jesus had taught earlier about those who live according to these commands and what that means in their heart, he would have known, I am in desperate need for salvation. I need something outside of myself. Don't commit adultery, meaning not just on the outside, but the adultery of the heart the lust that we're so inclined to have, the, the waywardness of our eyes, the, the lust in our hearts that wants what we cannot have. And those who lust after another woman are those who are also violating this command of, of committing adultery. Don't murder. Of course, he would have known if he had been listening to Jesus' messages That those who hate their brother, those who don't get along with the the ones around them and who despise them, hatred for a brother is equated with murder in Jesus' spiritual economy. Don't steal. Don't take the wages 
of those who work for you as a wealthy ruler. Don't hold back, don't restrain, don't, don't keep back good from those who are working for you or you're a stealer. Jesus meant to share these commands to expose the spiritual depravity of his heart. But he didn't see it. He said, check, I got it, I'm good. So Jesus needs to step in again, take it to the next level. And he says then in verse 22, sell all that you have, distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Jesus takes it to a place where it would be unmistakable. And this man, in response to Jesus' words, we find when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. He didn't capitalize on the moment of recognizing that he was out of step with God. He didn't come to the place of realization to know that there was spiritual bankruptcy in his heart. Rather, he walked away sad. He didn't understand that Jesus had to offer life to him. Then Jesus makes a shocking statement in verses 24 and 25 to his disciples. He says, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were shocked. Who then can believe, they say? Jesus is getting to the point of those who are physically poor often come to the place of recognizing they're also spiritually needy. There's a place of dependence. There's a place where they recognize that, that they need help from the outside. They're more receptive to the gospel while those who are rich often tend to be self-sufficient. Those who come to faith in Christ must come to the place of recognizing their spiritual bankruptcy, which is the whole point of those who are poor spiritually. It's not that... Jesus only saves poor people. It's that Jesus saves those who come to terms with their spiritual poverty. As we find in Luke chapter 6, verse 20, Jesus says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. The poor are those who recognize that they need something outside of themselves, something that they cannot supply on their own, something that only comes from God. In order for the gospel to be good, it must expose your spiritual neediness. Where are you this morning? I know there are some in this room today who do not have a relationship with Jesus. You need to come to the place of recognizing that you can't have the kind of life that God has called you to. You can't enjoy the benefits of relationship with God and peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't have on your own terms. You must have those things through faith in humbling and recognizing spiritual poverty and coming to ask God for help to overcome in your life what you lack. And that's what the power of the gospel comes to do. We're going to transition now to our time of communion where this is another illustration that God gives to us to help us recognize 
that our sufficiency comes through Christ alone, that what unifies us as a body comes through Christ alone. So let me pray for us, and then we'll transition briefly into our time of communion. Father, thank you this morning. Thank you for what you've accomplished for us through your son, Jesus. Thank you for the blessing of spiritual poverty because it encourages us to know that we add nothing to the equation. And that should be quite encouraging because all sufficiency, all salvation and power and deliverance comes from you, the Almighty One. And so, Lord, in these moments, as we remember the work of your Son, Jesus, I pray that you would lead those who know you as their Savior into worship, and those who do not know you as their Savior into an admission of their need for you and dependence and faith on you. Invite them to yourself. Draw them to salvation so they can experience the benefits of all that you have to offer in this good news to the poor. We praise you in Jesus' name, amen. I just wanna close with this final verse found in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. It says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. As we hold the elements in our hands, the, the bread and the cup, the, the physical expression, the symbol of all that God has, has accomplished for us through his son, Jesus, we come to recognize that there is this giving up of wealth, God emptying himself of all of the joys and glory and worship and experience of heaven so that he could come and offer us relationship with himself, forgiveness, cleansing. So as we hold the, the bread in our hand this morning, we, we think about the physicality of Christ. That he became man he humbled himself, he took the form of a servant so that he could be bruised and pierced and rejected and despised. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. This morning as we, as we take the bread together, remember all that is offered through the broken body of Christ in helping us to enjoy and experience good news. Let's remember him together. Of course, it wasn't enough for Jesus just to be beaten up. Jesus had to give his life's blood to be spilled out. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. There's no forgiveness. And so Jesus did that for you, did that for me. He offers life through himself in himself alone. You must come to the place of recognizing you add nothing to salvation. You are poor, you are needy, you are desperate, but Jesus is rich and offers you the joys 
an eternal inheritance with him. He's the prize. Jesus is the prize. So this morning, as we remember the life's blood of Jesus, let's drink together. Stand with me as we sing this final song as a prayer in remembering the work of Christ. As we sing together. have experienced that, there is good news to share. Have you enjoyed good news? Do you find yourself exploding each morning, erupting with, a, with the energy and enthusiasm of sharing that good news, conveying it somehow to the world around you? Huh. May God help us to come to a place of recognizing that we as dying men and women, boys and girls, are speaking and preaching and living in front of those who are dying and will experience eternity in hell unless they enjoy the benefits of good news. Do you have a ministry? A ministry of words. Not words that you bring, but the words of God the power of God to change lives. Good news. Go and share good news with everybody around you this week and pray that God, by his grace, will let us enjoy the benefits of that news as we see the harvest. I'm praying for soul harvest these next several weeks before Easter. And I'm praying that God will let us have a full service of baptisms. So anyone who wants to be baptized, who hasn't been baptized yet, pray that God does his work. And we'll get to enjoy 
the evidence of what God came to do through his son, Jesus. So participate with me if you would. Thanks for coming. God bless you this week as you go.